0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schistel joining the show today from Tunisia and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Marie Lejeune for a conversation about the previous Umayyad Caliphate's administration in the Mediterranean Basin. Dr. Lejeune is Lecturer in Islamic History, Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies in the School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures at the University of Edinburgh, based in Scotland. She is co-editor of the book, Authority and Control in the Countryside, From Antiquity to Islam in the Mediterranean and Near East, 6th to 10th Century, which was published by Brill. And she's author of the forthcoming book, Territory and Power. Early Islamic Administration in Middle Egypt, 642 to 868, which will be published by the University of Chicago Press. And Dr. Lejean joins the show today from Edinburgh, in Scotland. Welcome to the show, Marie.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So, to
0: start the conversation, Marie, and to create sufficient background and context, and then, of course, we can work our way into the details. What was the Umayyad Caliphate, and what period of time did they rule?
1: So the Umayyad Caliphate ruled from 661 to 750, and it is the first dynasty of Islamic history. Uh, Basically, what happened before they came to power was, of course, the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad. And then when the Prophet Muhammad died in 632, He's known to have been succeeded by four caliphs. Uh, This is a title given to his successors, and this is actually what caliph means in Arabic. It means a successor. He's succeeded by four men, uh, Abu Bakr, Omar, Osman, and Ali, uh, who were not related to each other. So in a sense, it's a succession that is not really in the form of a dynasty. You don't have a father succeeded by his son or by any members of his family. came from the same tribe that was the tribe of the prophet, but it was not really a dynasty per per se. So the Umayyads are the first to implement dynastical succession. So this is why they are the first dynasty of Islam. And so they rule after the uh, last of what is called the Rashidun Caliphs. This is the name given in Arabic sources, especially Sunni sources to those four men who succeeded the prophet first. And then the Umayyad family came to power.
0: Marie, where was the capital for the Umayyad caliphate or capitals?
1: So the main capital for the Umayyads was Damascus and Syria, which was a change in comparison to the previous period, because uh, the Prophet Muhammad and his successors are known to have ruled mainly from Arabia and precisely from the city of Medina. Uh, the Umayyads had a lot of uh, their um, allies, uh, tribal support that was in Syria. And this is one of the reasons why they were more connected to that region. Uh, but another reason was that the first of the Umayyad caliphs uh, of the dynasty, let's say Moawiyah, uh was a governor of Syria beca- before he became caliph. So that's another reason for them to be attached to that region. Can
0: you go over what their geographic demarcation obviously it didn't just pertain to the Mediterranean basin, but the show's catchment area, as you know and the listeners know, is the is the Mediterranean basin. So we'll obviously spend more of the conversation in the Mediterranean basin. Um, but can you go over what their ge- geographic demarcation um, uh, was when they came into uh, rule, and then what it the extent what what it grew grew to. Um, during their uh, during their reign, and of course, you don't in the answer you, you don't have to circumscribe it to just the Medi- Mediterranean. Um, what was the overall uh, geographic demarcation that they would have uh, had for territories for hegemony?
1: So the the extent of the territory they ruled changed a lot uh, during uh, the time the Umayyads were in power. But when Muawiya became caliph, the first of the Umayyad Caliph in six sixty one, he inherited. Um, an empire that had already stretched from Arabia into the world of late antiquity in Syria, Iraq, in Egypt, and partly into North Africa, what is called North Africa in the sources. Uh, That is nowadays Libya, basically. Um, You had a number of incursions uh, a bit further than Egypt, I mean, for the West. But that was basically it, Arabia, Syria, Iraq, and a few incursions into Iran and uh, Egypt. Uh, and during the, let's say that the Umayyads stayed in power for a few centuries. And at the end of the Umayyad dynasty, the Islamic world had expanded greatly thanks to the conquest that were done by the Umayyads into North Africa. From Egypt, extending further into what, what is nowadays Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, uh, of course, and into the Iberian Peninsula and reaching as far as the city of Poitiers in France. Uh, but they didn't really establish rule as far as this in France, staying for uh, a short decade in the south of France, actually. But really, their rule was more implemented in the Iberian Peninsula. So let's say that the m- most uh, um effective implementation was in um, uh, in uh, the Iberian Peninsula, in the West, and in the East, uh, the compass also um, uh, continued uh, in the Iranian region, on the Iranian plateau, but also into Central Asia, reaching uh, as far as... Um, a region called uh, Transoxiana and Sloveniana. um nowadays um, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and further into the tab, and also reaching India uh, further south. Uh, in the north, it reached as far as a region that is called um, Armenia most of the time, uh, the Caucasus, basically. So uh, that's basically. Um, Uh, What the uh, Umayyads achieved really to expand this empire um, to the borders I've just explained.
0: It's a lot of uh, territory that you went over there, Marie. How did they uh, How did they approach um, dividing up the 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 the, the, the territories? Did they establish uh, provinces? Can you Can you speak more about about that?
1: Sure. Uh, what is quite clear is that all the territories that I've just mentioned didn't really have the same status in the Umayyad Empire. Uh, they were what we can call provinces in, um, in English. Let's say that Syria was the center and Syria in itself was composed of uh, uh, at least five provinces. Um, the geography is just not so clear from the sources that we have. And then Egypt was a province, and Iraq was a province. That was kind of the backbone of the, um, um, of the empire that the Umayyad inherited. And of course, in a sense, Arabia can be um, considered as a province, but it, is not, uh, it has a status that is the big difference, because this is really the heartland of the Islamic world. So um, it's not described in the same way that, for instance, Egypt is described. And when the conquest uh, continued, um, it's very clear that um, um, it was launched from Egypt for the West and from Iraq, from Iraq to the East. So let's say a lot of scholars have phrased it in this way that Egypt and Iraq become super provinces as... The conquest continues. Basically, you're going to have the governor of Egypt appointing military uh, generals, launching raids into North Africa, and over time establishing an administration that is going to be linked to the administration of Egypt. And it's only over time that an uh, autonomous administration is going to develop in North Africa and then, of course, in the Iberian Peninsula. And the same happens in the East from Iraq, the governor of Iraq is going to send generals to continue the conquest and over time an autonomous administration is going to develop in a number of regions that are linked to Iraq.
0: In each of these territories, and um, so I, this shows obviously in, in, uh, in, in English, um, so, um, so the term pro- provinces, what would they, so in, in Arabic, what, what, what would they have called these different different territories out of curiosity?
1: So at the time of the emirates, it's actually really hard to uh, to know. But the later sources tell us that the term was Jund, uh, which which is actually a military term and uh, reflects to uh, the provinces being really the area that is under the authority of a given military detachment.
0: Okay, and uh, using using a term um, "governor" as a as a as a potential term in English. Did they have the concept of governor? And can you speak a little bit more about that and what, what, what uh, term in, England, in, uh, rather in Arabic that they would have used?
1: Well, the term that they use for any commander is the term Amir, uh, and this is, this is a way in which we see that the Arabic terminology for officers is not very diversified in that period. Anyone who's a commander is an amir. The caliph is actually most of the time in the, Am- in the Umayyad period, in the documentation that we have that is contemporary to the Umayyad period, he's called Amir al-Muminin, which which means Commander of the Believers. So the title caliph is actually very rare, but it's I guess a term that we use across Islamic history because it's how retrospectively they are going to be called. The contemporary materials say that they are Amir and Muminin, the commander of the Believer. And then the governors are also given the title of Amir. And the military uh, military commanders, yes, are also called Amir. So in a sense, the terminology is quite repetitive. And we see that the titles are not necessarily what provides status uh, in the Umayyad uh, um, administration and in the Umayyad uh, framework of authority. One example I can give to illustrate that is that when we have, for instance, state documents that are both in Arabic and in Greek, we find that in the Greek parts, the officials are given a lot of titles, but in the Arabic parts, you you don't necessarily have titles. Uh, and it is quite clear that it is the names and the patronymic of the officials that really provide status for them, and this kind—it of, matches what we otherwise know of um, what gave legitimacy to a ruler or a commander within the Umayyad context, which was their tribal identity, their familial uh, identity. And that explains why a name would be more telling of the position of someone—a name and a patronymic—and also uh, the tribal, um, the mention of their tribe, better than actually a title.
0: What's a uh, a, 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 an example territory? So, was there um, was there a territory, for instance, uh, in the in the Egypt area? would that have been uh, one of the, the the areas that they would have um, de, uh, demarcated within their broader territory and I have a follow-up question but can we use that as an example was there was there a demarcation in the e- egypt area
1: so do you mean is it was egypt a province
0: yeah e- yeah
1: yes yes absolutely Egypt was a central province as I said you the backbone of um, Umayyad territorial power at the beginning of their rule was really Syria in the middle and Egypt in the west and Iraq in the east. And it's very clear that from the time Egypt was conquered uh, between uh, 639 and 641, that's before the Umayyads arrived, but basically the Umayyads inherit that, that you had an emir in Egypt who was ruling from a new city. That is called Fustat, that is actually nowadays in Cairo, but Cairo didn't exist uh, at that time. Cairo is founded in the 10th century by a, a dynasty called the Fatimids. Uh, so, this new city of Fustat was a new center of the province, and it, it creates the province uh, in, the, um, in the Islamic realm. A new center, a new govern- governor, this Amir and this is how Egypt becomes part of the Islamic realm and this is how it is inherited by the Umayyads.
0: And so using that as an example, would they have had, and, and so the, the term emir, is that synonymous with with, a, with an, an English term in, in modern times as governor? Is that Are those treated for all intents and purposes as synonymous, synonyms?
1: Sure. Yeah, that that would be a good fit. Yeah, the Amir of Egypt would be the Governor
0: of Egypt. Okay, and then, um, so when Muawiyah was in power, as an example, um, would would he have related to himself as a as a Khalifa, as a Caliph? Sorry, I didn't get
1: that. Can you repeat the question,
0: please? Yeah, and what I'm what I'm um, following up on was the comment about uh, you had you had used a. Uh, another term for the 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 caliph and so so i'm wondering and i'm wondering if um so someone so someone like uh who is in who who ruled the caliphate at one point in time did the actual term um and i'll do my best with the pronunciation halifa the or or right or uh yeah halifa would would that have existed in the in the seventh Century, or, did that, or did that term, Khalifa, come into existence later on?
1: So we, we have no attestation of actually Mu'awiyah being called a caliph. Uh, and I mean by that uh, material that is contemporary, that was produced at the time of the Umayyad, and we knew it was produced in that time, that calls Mu'awiyah Khalifa. Uh, So that's very interesting and of course it has created a lot of debate on how those um, rulers really represented themselves. But the title that is um, found for him and for all of his successors is the title Amir al-Muminin, as I said, this commander of the believers. Um, And this is actually a term that doesn't really get replaced by Khalifa, Caliph, when the title is finally attested. Uh, It is a title that is used across the history of uh, the Islamic world. Uh, nowadays, you have the King of Morocco who calls himself, or one of his titles is another million, for instance. So um, it's, it's a title that is extremely common throughout the history of Islam. Uh, but what happens during the Umayyad period is that we had the first attestation of the term Khalifa on the coin of the time of the Caliph, Abd al-Malik uh, who's one of the successors of Moria, not the direct uh, successor. Uh, he's the fifth of the Umayyad caliph and he starts ruling in 685.
0: Well, that's, that's and, interesting. Okay.
1: So yeah, even after him, it's, it's a title that is rarely used. Um, uh, again, we use it as historians to talk about this period again, because a lot of the sources that talk about that period actually use that term, but it's more a retrospective, uh, Terminology, it seems, than really something that was widely used in the Maya period.
0: And you're saying occasionally was used as of 685. Yes. Okay. It's 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 interesting. I'm glad you. I'm glad we had this uh, dialogue around around this, Marie.
1: Um, yeah, and it, I mean it's very interesting. Of course, the, the debate that he has created is how did this, those rulers really perceive their authority? Because Khalifa, they said, is supposed to be either Khalifa, so successor of the Prophet, or successor of God on earth, and so it um, draws on the uh, connection of the caliph either to the Prophet or to God. Uh, whereas Amir al-Muminin, commander of the believer, actually focuses on the community. Uh, a commander of the believer that's the believing the new believing community uh, that of Islam of course it's in most uh, common understanding though there is a lot of debate on what this mu'minin actually means who are those believers and there is uh, an argument that has been made in the field that actually the early community of Muslim, uh, especially before this caliph of the Malik was actually inclusive of all the believers of uh, other um, uh, Abrahamic religions, uh, Christianity and Judaism. So there's a lot of, of debate on that and of course there's only so much you can say for sure just on the basis of a title.
0: So it sounds like it's an acknowledged neologism to some extent when in modern times people speak about these different periods and and reference um, Khalifa, Caliph, Khalif, right?
1: Yes. No, absolutely uh, and it's um and as I said it's useful to use this term uh, because when we talk to other fields or it's again the most common title um, to um, uh, that you will find in later commentaries about this period uh, but also the the thing we have to be honest with as a historian is that it's not because it's not attested in the small amount of sources that have survived from this period that we have the full picture. Uh, So it's only from what has been preserved that we have this coin and then we have, of course, uh, texts that are composed a bit later and a lot of poetry, for instance, as well, in which you will find this title that is being used. So of course, we can only reconstruct that picture on the basis of what has come down to us, but certainly we're, we're missing part of that picture and we have to be honest with that.
0: What was their approach to to taxes? What was what's known about their they had a lot of territory. And obviously, if we can focus more on the the, the, the Mediterranean um, to zero zero in a bit on the uh, on on policies there, what, what's known about how they approached um, uh, ta- taxes, tax collection?
1: Well, it's, it's very fortunate that you want to focus on the Mediterranean because actually yeah. One of the provinces on the Mediterranean is the best documented in terms of the fiscal system, and that's Egypt. And the reason for that is that the climate and the, um, let's say, the milieu in Egypt is ideal for the preservation of uh, documents on papyrus. So basically, we have hundreds of thousands of documents on papyrus that have been preserved from Egypt uh, from the early Islamic period, and a large part of that is from the Umayyad period. So it's really ideal um, to focus on that region. The problem, of course, is then we don't have anything similar for North Africa, we don't have anything similar for the Iberian Peninsula, so there's only so much we can say about how this actually applied uh, to other regions. But so basically, what I'm going to say is mainly based on this fantastic material that we have from, from Egypt. Uh, so basically, the first thing we can say about Umayyad administration and their approach to taxes is that. There's no big break between what they did at the beginning and what was done in the Rashidun period, in the period of those first caliphs. So between the conquest of Egypt against around 640 and the time Neumayas the came to power, in 661 roughly 20 years later, uh, we still find this um, taxation that is mainly um, uh, fitting the needs of uh this new power that is establishing itself in the different region. One of the first things that they needed to collect taxes for were uh, to um, sustain their armies and also to settle their armies into the uh, different region. As I said, when the Congress of Egypt was terminated, the the, um, uh, new governor and his army uh, did not settle in an existing city. Uh, the object, obvi- the obvious choice would have been Alexandria, of course. This was the largest city in Egypt. But this is not the choice that they made. Uh, they chose to settle uh, where Cairo is nowadays, uh, at the apex of the Nile Delta, and found a new city in- that was built just for the conquerors and for this new authority implement- implementing itself in in the region. So. We see very clearly, we have very detailed documents uh, that are telling us that taxes are paid, uh, especially in kind, in order to build that city. So you have building material that is being collected. You have a lot of things like that. Uh, bricks, for instance, um, that are going to be sent from the Egyptian Valley to build the new cities. And then you have a lot of supplies for the armies and of course 20 years into the um, after the conquest we see a bit the bit less of building material and we see a lot of um, uh, supplies for the armies that are becoming to become really different we see that uh, we've moved on from a time where it was just about settling an army and we really see that the new ruling class is uh, asking for a large diversity of products you know honey for instance and this is This is a sign that um, they have settled and they have developed a way of life that is more about consuming uh, the variety of products that are available in the region than just settling and moving on and conquering other, other regions. So that's still something that is visible at the beginning of the Maya period. And this is really something that is crucial in the way that they collect taxes. They collect a lot of taxes in kind. Uh, which means, of course, for the taxpayer that they are going to have to produce a lot of things uh, that are not necessarily what they were used to before the Islamic conquest. Uh, so um, that's definitely a big change for the taxpayers. Um, there's all of those taxes that they have to um, produce in kind.
0: Can you go over? I've I've heard this before. There is a. Different tax tier if someone um, wasn't practicing Islam, and then and then there was a different policy if if someone was practicing Islam. Can you can you go over what's known about about the policies about that?
1: Sure, it's a very interesting topic because what's for instance, when the Umayyads come to power, it's it's quite clear that the divide is not necessarily who's a Muslim and who's not a Muslim. Uh, basically, the system is quite clear in saying that uh, the conquered are the one who are paying the taxes, and the conquerors are the one who are receiving the taxes. And of course, that's going to, that's going to be something that is going to be uh, relevant for the whole Maya period, because as we said at the beginning of this. Um, this uh, conversation is that the conquest is continuing uh, during the time the Umayyad are in power. So that's really the main divide. But of course, over time, um, it's going to change uh, and we're going to start to find, um, let's say um, Muslims who are not necessarily conquerors or Muslims that are not necessarily um, part of the ruling elite. And this is going to happen um, following different dynamics. For instance, one we're going to find is Muslims settling outside of the new city. Um, maybe in Egypt, of course, it's the same in Iraq. Uh, the uh, conquerors did not settle in the existing cities. They found the new cities for themselves. So when you have Muslims who are kind of outside of the circle of the ruling elite, then they ne- necessarily need to be taxed. And of course, the other um, uh, way in which we can have Muslims who are paying taxes is when uh, conquerors uh, actually convert to Islam. Uh, Though it is well known that it is not a process that was, uh, that is very visible in the Umayyad period. There are no, there is no sense that uh, conversion was happening on a large scale uh, during the Umayyad period. So it would be really for um, Uh, a minority of the population, those Muslim taxpayers, they wouldn't form the majority. Um, So basically what those later sources tell us uh, is that from what they claim is that from very early on, you had this fiscal system that had different dynamics and different rates for the Muslim and the non muslims And especially uh, they focus on that then when they talk about the poll tax. And the poll tax was largely an innovation that was introduced right after the conquest, but it was not motivated by um, religion. Basically, collecting the poll tax, if you look at um, world history and you do a little comparison, uh, comparative history of empires and conquests, you see that collecting a poll tax, uh, meaning a tax that is going to be paid, for instance, by all men over a certain age. It's easier to collect than really reassessing taxes on land or doing something with land. It's easier to say, well, how many people do you have in that village or in that city? Uh, Then you're going to ask all of those to pay, for instance, one gold coin a year. Uh, It's easier to base this collection on the number of population than it is on what the land is going to produce because that's a, a a little bit harder to assess. So if you want to have a very efficient ad hoc a collection of taxes. this is what you do, you introduce a poll tax. Uh, So that's what happens after the Islamic conquest, uh, the introduction of that poll tax that is not motivated by um, uh, a a definition of religious categories, let's say. But over time, uh, and this is again what those later sources tell us, is that you're going to have a system in which the non-Muslim pay this poll tax. Uh, and this, in exchange of which, they get protection and uh, freedom of belief. Uh, this is how, for instance, it's phrased in a lot of religious texts, drawing from the Quran. Uh, however, when we try to trace this religiously motivated tax in the Umayyad period, the picture is not really as clear. Uh, especially in the period before um, Abd al-Malik, this caliph that I've already um, mentioned. Uh, and the Marwanids, which is the name of his family. So basically, just to give a bit of background, the Umayyad ruling family is divided into two branches that rule one after the other. The first one is the Supyanid. Muawiyah, the first Caliph, is the first Caliph of the Supyanids. You have three Caliphs, and then the remaining Umayyad Caliphs are from this other branch of the Marwanid family. Uh, the, this other branch, story of the Umayyads, and in the end they are called the Marwanids. So it's really in this Marwanid period, after 684, 685, that we start to uh, see more evidence that this poll tax was levied regularly, uh, and that it's always paid by um, non muslims especially Christians. We have more evidence for Christians paying this poll tax. But the other thing that we see in this Manwani period, is so basically the turn of the 8th century until the end of the Umayyad period in 750, uh, we see a lot of, um, in a lot of regions that um, the taxpayers are quite displeased by the um, uh, fiscal measures implemented by the Umayyads. And we see basically a lot of rebels uh, that are most, most of the time formulated in our sources as fiscal rebels. And so what is quite clear is that those revolts, uh, many times, especially in Egypt, are going to um, uh, be led by both Christians and Muslims. And those people are unhappy about the taxes that they pay. So that shows us that both Muslim and and Christians were paying taxes. So it might not have been that they all paid the poll tax, because of course there is also a discussion about um, what converts would pay. it's a huge discussion um, in, in the later legal text, but they reflect on the, on the Umayyad period when they talk about that. So are those people revolving, saying, all Christians, no, we have Christians and Muslims. Then are those Muslims converts? They might be, but we don't have enough information about that. But what is clear is that we clearly have Muslims paying taxes in the Umayyad period, and they are quite unhappy about it in a number of regions. So. That's how the picture is quite complicated. It's not as clear-cut. Uh, the Muslim pay this and the Christian pay that and the Christians or the non-Muslim in general pay more than the Muslims. Uh, it's still a picture that is quite complicated to, to understand.
0: Okay, got a question about communication. So what, what's, and it's a very pragmatic question, um, but an, an important one. So there's a lot of territory that they had hegemony over. How would um, a caliph in Damascus, for, in, for instance, send a message to an emir, uh, a governor um, in, a, in a different province, a different territory, like let's say Egypt or somewhere else in Northern Africa, as an example, how would they actually get that a message there? And, what, and what's known about how long it would take for a message to, to get there?
1: So we can only. um, There are a number of very, very nice websites actually, which are available both for the Roman world and for the Islamic world, and when you can, you can calculate uh, how long it could go from one place to another. And basically, the the idea we get is that communications were very, very slow. which is unsurprising in the pre-modern world. Um, and the kind of estimate we end up with is that it would take, for instance, um, between uh, Damascus, the chemical center, and, for instance, for starts in Egypt, uh, around 15 days for a message to arrive, or basically for a person to arrive carrying a message. Uh, and it could take around 20 days to go from Damascus to. Uh, uh, Kufa, which was one of the main centers in Iraq, or around a month to Basra, which was the other um, founded cities for the for the conquerors. Uh, so that's how we have to acknowledge that certainly uh, things were moving very slow. And if the caliph wanted his governors to do something, uh, it, he would have to wait for this uh, for his command to be um, received uh, and then things to, uh, to be applied from, from the reception of the message. So uh, that's very slow, but we still see that the Umayyad, especially again in the second half of the Umayyad period, this Mahawani period, we definitely see that um, a system of postal stations had been implemented. We have again documents from Egypt talking about that, how you had um, postal stations, uh, Along the Egyptian Valley, and a lot of later sources tell us about how it worked in the other regions. So, there was a lot of effort put into um, the, those communication networks. Uh, this was certainly something that the Umayyads invested in. But still, is that, of course, from our perspective, communications were very slow.
0: For everybody listening, uh, Dr. Legendre, uh, having that information so detailed probably made it sound like these were pre-scripted questions but these are not pre-scripted questions. So that was that was uh, very detailed, Marie, well done.
1: Thank you.
0: Um, so if it wasn't an island that a message needed to get out to, again a very pragmatic question, was it by horse? Is it presumed or known in, in these cases that, the, uh, that a messenger would, would travel?
1: I guess it depends on which um, which region you're talking about, but yes, that would be the primary uh, um, mode of circulation, if you if I can phrase it like that. Yeah, uh, and I mean boats. Um, that's that's also something that is. Uh, that is a bit hard to say, of course, for the islands because the um, for the Mediterranean islands because yeah, I mean, communication with those islands, of course, naturally was by boat. Uh, but um, we don't have so many information about how much settlement was very, really. Uh, uh, I mean, we can't really trace settlements in those islands that would allow us to say, well, you had regular communication, for instance, between Egypt and. Uh, And some of the Mediterranean islands, for instance, between Tunisia and and Sicily, of course, you had raids uh, to those those islands. So um, uh, I don't think we can really um, reconstruct um, uh, networks of communication within the Mediterranean in that period.
0: Okay, Um, to what degree would you say that the caliphate, Marie, was centralized in their administration and, and governance, and what I mean more specifically by that is, the story has come up a few times, at least two in two different episodes in in, in the past on this show. Of um, one, I believe, was a, a military leader uh, leading an army um, into the into the Iberian Peninsula. And You brought that up in one of your responses earlier, and uh, and I've I've heard uh, it's believed that the caliph didn't know about those events. Like it, was, it wasn't a sanctioned um, uh, military uh, campaign. Um, but on the other hand, I'm sure there were examples of a lot of coordination um, in, in the caliphate. Uh, how would you describe the, the level of um, coordination? And would you, would, you, would you consider it a very centralized government or was it more, um, uh, de- decentralized, um, and you could take that from a communications perspective. You could also take it from a tax collection uh, perspective as well.
1: Yes, it's, it's a very interesting question, and uh, I would short answer. I would con- I would consider that the Mayan Empire was largely decentralized, uh, and that was it. it is interesting because. When you see this kind of terminology being used by historians, you have uh, often the idea that it's it's positive to be centralized and it's a good thing to be centralized and it's it's actually a bad thing to be decentralized. And I completely disagree with that because it's building on what we just said about communications. Um, you can't have uh, an empire that is 100% centralized. It's not going to work. If you have an army that is ready to raid, and especially when you think about the Mediterranean or some of the uh, regions of the caliphate, you can't raid in the winter. uh, And you have to raid at certain times, really. So waiting for an answer from the caliph when you are uh, attempting to raid the Iberian Peninsula and the capital in Damascus—that doesn't sound very practical, and that doesn't sound very efficient. So the way I see the um, Umayyad Empire functioning is uh, that each of the um, provinces had a lot of autonomy. Uh, they had a lot of autonomy, uh, sometimes in deciding for raids, sometimes in. And most of the time, I would say, in um, deciding of their fiscal policies, they're also. I mean, it's also a case that um, that because the let's say the Islamic world expanded so fast, in a sense, and um, integrated regions that were that had been separated for most of the previous centuries, they also had to work with. Uh, the local, um, how can I say, um, the local dynamics, and those were multiple. Um, that means that different provinces had to function using different languages. That's, that's one way in which it's obviously decentralized, because you have this multiplicity of operative languages that have to be used in the administration. Uh, the coinage is also using different different precious metals. Some regions used gold, some regions used uh, silver. That has implications on this fiscal system and that has implications on the local economies. Um, so those are a number of ways in which the region had to function differently. Uh, again, coming back to communication, it was, you know, it's not realistic to think that everything that had to be done in the provinces um, Needed to be done with the uh, let's say the green light of the Caleb that wouldn't have worked at all in practice. And as far as as far as the fiscal system is um, and the let's say the transfer of revenue uh, um, is concerned, uh, it is very clear from all of the available evidence, the contemporary material as much as the later sources, that the fiscal system and the um, use of revenue was decentralized. And that has to do also with the way the military uh, system was organized. Basically, each provinces provinces had their army. And of course, for any pre-modern empire, the main domain of expenditure is going to be the army. So a, lo- a large part of the taxes are used to pay the army locally. Then there is a sense that, a small part of the fiscal revenue could be sent back to the caliph, or Also a part of the spoils of war and that's mainly the later sources that talk about that But it's not going to be a case of having most of the tax income of the region going to Damascus again In practical from a practical perspective, that would be very very hard to manage. So most of the tax sales were spent locally but also we find that uh, And that's again, something that is very well documented for Egypt is that uh, taxes in Egypt were also collected and used to contribute to the uh, economic life of the neighboring provinces. And I mean by that, that we have a very clear picture in the first decades of the 8th century of taxes that are collected throughout the Egyptian Valley. And some of them are sent to Arabia, Uh, through the Red Sea. So they don't go through Damascus in any sense. They go directly to Arabia, uh, to most certainly uh, the holy cities of of Mecca and Medina. Other taxes collected at the same time are sent to North Africa, because as I explained earlier, for a, a part of the Umayyad period, North Africa was an extension of the province of Egypt, but also Egypt contributed militarily to the campaigns in the Mediterranean. So we would have, for instance, uh, sailors that are asked to come from the villages in Egypt and go to uh, contribute to the raids, uh, to the naval raids in the Mediterranean. And their contribution is considered as a fiscal payment. Another uh, example is that also taxes were collected from Egypt to serve the construction of um, buildings in um, in Palestine. Uh, we do have we have immense evidence of uh, building activities of the Umayyads in the wider Syrian region, uh, and we do have a lot of evidence saying that builders from Egypt, but also resources from Egypt were used um, to, uh, to build those uh, monuments, especially in Palestine. And so that's, in a sense, we see how the contribution of the province of Egypt to the caliphate is not only about connecting Egypt to the caliphal center in Damascus. It's also connecting to the other imperial project within the caliphate. And that's also a way in which we see that the decentralization doesn't mean that the empire was disconnected in any way this uh, decentralization is a necessity for a larger empire to function but i'm very sure that this empire was very well connected
0: okay for all the listeners the um uh dr brian Catlos uh has been on the show a couple times in the past but that uh that that story of um uh the an army in 711 uh beginning to gain hegemony in Iberia. i know uh dr katlos uh, mentioned that um uh, that story if anyone wants to look up that episode that that episode was on the umayyad caliphate's gaining uh umayyad caliphate gaining hegemony in in iberia and it was published on april 9th 2021 um so working our way to some closing uh questions marie uh were they was the Caliphate printing their own um, coinage by this point?
1: Yes, I mean, um, and you mean by the end
0: of the land period? Any any time in the period, I'm asking it like uh, open ended. Were they, um, and the, I guess the better term is minting. Were they minting um, yes. coinage at all in the in in this period?
1: Yes, Uh, I mean, coins are really a a fantastic source for the Umayyad period, and also because there are a lot of changes that are happening in those coins. And of course, they are interesting from an administrative point of view, because when we see um, coins being minted in a certain place, either it tells us that uh, an administration had been implemented, or it's telling us that uh, soldiers needed to be paid in that place. So it can tell us about settlement and administration or it, or it can tell us about conquest. Uh, and so, yes, there are a lot of um, changes happening on the coins. Um, on Let's say the imagery that will apply on this coin. So what is exactly being minted on the coins? Uh, and from the beginning of the period, you have coins that are minted uh, across the um, the regions under Umayyad rule, um, they are minted locally, but they still look very much like the coins of the previous empires that ruled the different region. meaning that in Syria and in Egypt, they look like the Byzantine coins. You have a continuity of um, motifs uh, that are printed on those coins. And in the former Sasanian region, they still print the motifs uh, of the Sasanians. However, those uh, motifs are going to evolve uh, progressively and then very quickly in the beginning of the Manwanic period, again, under the scale of Abdel Malik. So basically what happens uh, under Moaria, it's not really everywhere, but we find examples of coins in uh, Syria, on which the uh, Christian symbol are, in a sense, de-Christianized. Basically, if you picture a coin with a cross on it as a symbol of Christianity, basically the horizontal bar is going to disappear. And it basically looks like a pole or just a vertical stroke. Um, So it's not necessarily yet creating a new imagery, but it's uh, changing the available symbols. And this is going to change a lot uh, during the time of Abd al-Malik. Uh, again, the fifth of the Umayyad caliph, and he's from the second branch of the Umayyad family, the Marwanids. Uh, and basically, just to cut a long story short, Abd al-Malik is going to um, offer a fully epigraphic um, imagery. In a sense, it's not really a, a fully epigraphic model, let's say, for the coins. Uh, that is, of course, going to remain very much like this for most of Islamic history, basically is going to introduce Quranic quotes on those coins, and those quotes are going to be in Arabic. So, in contrast to the previous models of the Byzantines and the Sicilians, which had representation of the ruling figures uh, or symbols of religion, uh, only writing is going to remain on the reformed coinage. Of Abdel Malik. And this reform uh, happened around the year 683. And uh, it's mainly visible on the um, gold coinage and the silver coinage. The bronze coinage is going to follow a very different chronology and is going to evolve a lot more slowly. Uh, and that's also something that happened in the 680s, mainly in the central regions of Umayyad rule. Basically, it's very visible in Syria, Egypt, and, and Iraq. But it's going to take a lot longer, of course, uh, for this to be introduced once new provinces are conquered. For instance, uh, North Africa, uh, when the conquest uh, resumes in the early 8th century, and of course, with the conquest of um, um, the Iberian Peninsula, we see there's a delay of nearly 14 years to implement that. this new um model of coins so things are done uh, at different uh following different chronologies um in the different regions but that's something that we can uh, tether to the umayyad's achievements to create uh, a model for the coinage that is an islamic one
0: is there a final point you want to mention uh before we wrap up Marie, about the Umayyad Caliphate's administration in the Mediterranean Basin?
1: Yes, uh, yeah, actually, I, there's a, a nice point I think we can, we can finish on is that, of course, I've been mentioning all those paradigmatic caliphs, Muawiyah and Malik, and achievements that are attached to their names. But, of course, when we study the administration, we see a lot of other agents of the states. We've mentioned the governors and the, the army commanders as well. But what is extremely well-known and well-documented throughout the Umayyad period is also the contribution of the conquered and the contribution of the local elites to the Umayyad administration. And they are of um, Syrian, Egyptian, North African, or or, um, Iberian origin, or from Persian origin, and they use most of the time their own um, language of administration, maybe Persian, Greek or Latin. And we definitely see the contribution also of those groups to Umayyad administration in the way those languages are used as essential language of um, Umayyad administrative practice, but also they reach very high position in the Caliphate administration. So uh, we can finish on that note that um, let's say the Umayyad employees were quite diverse uh, in terms of religion, in terms of origin, and also in terms of linguistic background.
0: It became uh, homogenous over time, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, it started very much homogenous as well. So uh, that's really something that is visible across the period.
0: It was a pleasure speaking with you, Marie. You have a lot of knowledge on this topic. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode, Dr. Lejeune is co-editor of the book Authority and Control in the Countryside, From Antiquity to Islam in the Mediterranean and Near East, 6th to 10th century. And she's author of the forthcoming book, Territory and Power, Early Islamic Administration in Middle Egypt, 642 to 868. I'll drop a link immediately to the former book and when the other book, the latter, becomes available, I'll update the show notes page. So over time, links to both the books will be available in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated sub page to this episode. Marie and everybody listening as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey, again.